Hello and welcome to Love is a Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor and counterculture. My name is Tim Lawrence and I'm joined by Jem Gilbert. Hi, Jem. Hi, Tim. How, how are, are you? you? <laughs> I'm fine. Good. Oh, how are you? I'm fine. I'm good, thanks. Uh, especially good because today we are returning, uh, at least in our imaginations and also in our listening to Brazil. Uh, and this is the third of three episodes we're dedicating to the country. Um, and the first one really looked at the backdrop, um, to the r- rise of samba, kind of arguably in conjunction with the redefinition of what it meant to be Brazilian. And we took that up pretty much to 1967 and covered the rise of Bossa Nova. And then uh, for the last episode, the second episode on Brazil, uh, we looked at Tropicalia. Uh, which took us more or less to the end of 1969. And uh, today we are going to cover the 1970 to 1975 period uh, in Brazilian music and a little bit of uh, background in terms of the social and political situation. So, Jem, uh, I think you want to sort of introduce some of those thematics before we get going with the music. Well, the social and political situation isn't really radically different from where we left it in the last episode. Uh, I mean, arguably 1970 to 75 coincides with the worst period of repression in Brazil after the crackdown on student protests and left-wing insurgencies of the of 68 to 69. So you have this quite complicated situation in Brazil and quite distinctive, whereby elections, for example, were never actually suspended as such. But in effect, you have a military dictatorship, or it's probably more accurate to say a military control of the executive branch of government, which abrogates to itself the power to overrule elections, to ban political parties arbitrarily, and to remove elected officials from office. So in effect, you've got a situation where they're constantly trying to engineer a situation in which there are functioning liberal democratic institutions and norms, but the only contending parties within them are either right-wing militarist nationalists or pro-capitalist liberals. And whenever it looks like they might have achieved that, they start to ease off things like censorship and banning of opposition and they hold elections. But whenever it looks like there's any danger of the left actually winning anything, democratic institutions and processes are simply suspended and the military just assert themselves as the only real source of legitimate power. And this carries on really throughout the period 64 to 85, during which time supposedly only a few hundred people are actually killed um, by the regime for political reasons, but tens of thousands of people are imprisoned and and tortured uh, for their dissidents and of course this is all going on with the explicit collusion as well explicit although sometimes covert collusion of the u.s state department and various u.s governments so and this is a pretty familiar situation and in fact i mean to be honest this is an ongoing situation in brazil you know it's still the case you know it's the case that you know the Brazilian social and elite were pretty were able were willing to tolerate having a social democratic president from a working class background, like for a few years um, in the early two thousands. But when he was succeeded by another 
person with similar credentials, uh, they went into absolute meltdown and effectively, you know, and ended up imprisoning him, Lula, and, uh, you know, basically throwing out his successor. Um, but then that turned, and that's how you ended up with the Bolsonaro government. Um, but that 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 has turned out to be totally dysfunctional. And it looks like Lula of the Workers' Party is probably going to be elected president again soon. So you have to say this is just, you know, this is still ongoing in Brazil, really, that you just, you have a situation in which a large sections of the capitalist class and their sort of clients among the middle classes just basically periodically decide they just won't accept uh, democracy if democracy is going to produce sort of social democratic outcomes, like never mind communist or revolutionary outcomes, which is a situation which frankly should be in, is increasingly familiar to us here in Britain. You know? I mean, you can make a pretty fair parallel with the, the hysteria over the possibility of a Corbyn prime ministership, even from kind of liberal centrist in this country. I mean, I think we're, you know, we're, the situation is basically the same now, frankly, in this country. So... Anyway, that is the broad context within which uh, within which some music culture is evolving. And broadly speaking, the levels of repression and censorship towards to which music is subjected during this period are very variable. They really vary every couple of years. And by the end of the period we're concerned with 74, 75. There's a degree of liberalisation taking place. There's some restoration of democracy, although that is mainly because, just as has happened actually in other contexts we've already looked at, just as happened in the United States, for example, the perceived threat from radical students and from the radical left at the end of the 60s and the very beginning of the 70s is seen to have been effectively neutralized so that is why there's a degree of liberalization coming on the horizon in the mid 70s but of course that that liberalization is relative and you won't see anything like a restoration of what we would regard as democratic norms until 1985 so the first um record that i wanted to um talk about today is a is a real favorite of mine uh and it's the album uh krishnanda by pedro santos um um and it was his debut not only his debut album but i think uh, his debut solo album but i think it's his only solo album which is really you know never quite well so i was going to say something ridiculous i was going to say i've never quite got over that but obviously it hasn't been devast you know devastating in that way at all but it is an extraordinary album and a favourite, and it just doesn't can't quite understand why we never got more of it. Anyway, Pedro Santos um, was born in Rio in in nine, I think nineteen nineteen, um, and this album was released uh, on CBS in nineteen sixty eight. So I guess he's like about forty nine years old, fifty years old. Um, so nineteen sixty eight, of course, the year of Tropicalia. Why this doesn't seem to be included in the Tropicalismo lists, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but I'm don't recall seeing it in, in any of those lists. Anyway, the album is is um, considered to be a kind of cornerstone of Brazilian psychedelia. Um, I mean, let's let's sort of listen to a record. So I, I, I didn't know which one to pick because I've got about at least five or six tracks on here that I think are just, inc- you know, fantastic. 
Um, I mean, significantly, the opening track is, I'm just, I'll mention in passing, it's called Rit- Ritual Negro or Negro, Black Ritual. So it's setting the tone already for this kind of theme of, you know, Afro-Brazilian identity coming through very, very strongly uh, in a way that, you know, at least goes back to the kind of origins of samba, as we've already discussed. But this wasn't a thematic that was being foregrounded in quiet, so obvious a way with within Tropicalia. Um, anyway, that's the opening track. A second another track that I kind of was very tempted to play uh, but won't is on the other the other side Dentro da Selva um, which is really quite um, hypnotic and quite sort of danceable and gets quite trippy uh, at points but the record I thought we would hear um, just because it demonstrates sort of you know uh, Pedro Santos's musicianship particularly well I think is the second track on the album, which is Agua Viva. Está tudo aí que eu vi, está tudo aí, está tudo aí, revivi, já revivi. Água que deságua por aqui, dessa água já bebi, vem do amor que recebi. Tira sede de matar, tira sede de roubar, vem tomar. So um, what we have on this entire album is, is a sort of shifting aesthetic that sort of brings in kind of, you know, uh, indigenous folk sounds, clearly a sort of, you know, an Afro soul sound and also draws on samba. Um, but the thing that is kind of also lies at the centre of it is that Pedro Santos is his virt- was, a, uh, was a virtuoso percussionist. And he created lots of his own instruments, uh, including one that was called the tambour, which was an electrified bamboo drum, and also uh, something which is called the, a, a mouth whistle, which is the berimbau. And um, you can sort of hear this very intense um, processed um, percussion work on this track and indeed throughout the album. It's very spatialized. I mean, the, I did sort of... You know, some people do sometimes complain about sort of, you know, the quality of this repress, which was reissued by Mr. Bongo. I can't quite remember if it was like four years ago or five years ago or maybe longer. I can't, I I don't remember. So I think I bought it about five, maybe it was about five years ago. Um, But yeah, it's this, you've got this kind of this, it's a very, it's a very hip, a very hypnotic percussion based at times slightly kind of um murkily recorded album um and sometimes there's there are some complaints about well surely the original didn't sound like this uh but i've also read comments by people who do have the original that no actually mr bongo did an absolutely fantastic job and this is just kind of this is the aesthetic uh you hear it on quite a lot of the recordings from the the 50s and the 60s where there's not always the quite the same clarity you might expect of a kind of more recent studio recording but then there's also and this is what clearly was going on with with pedro santos is there's a desire to create a very unusual ambience which is kind of where sounds are blurring and are heavily you know heavily processed um in the way that was also going on you know as we know within dub music that would kind of you know uh and and late reggae music that's that so this is also coinciding with that period and sort of parallels it um so the rent this record disappeared into uh, obscurity and only got re- indeed was kind of revived uh you know very you know very wonderfully by mr bongo but i think one of the th- you know one of the other things to say about it is that it came out in this year of tropicalismo but i don't 
think it, it somehow wasn't received as this. And I think maybe one of the reasons is it wasn't, you know, obviously, it, to me, this is aesthetically, you know, significantly more adventurous than any of the albums or records that we listened to last week, uh, which were supposedly defined by their adventurousness. But this, for me, goes significantly further. Um, but it doesn't have such an explicit embrace of the West uh, and of rock music in particular, and maybe that's one of the reasons it's been ignored. But as I say, it's, it's a personal favourite. It's a good example of psychedelic music of the time, like experimenting with, you know, being mostly quite chilled, quite sort of downbeat, quite relaxed, um, as opposed to being sort of super intense, which was the main way in which the idea of a psycho- psychedelic musical aesthetic mm. was interpreted within acid rock mm. or just being sort of whimsical and childlike which is really the the version of sort of the psychedelic pop aesthetic which tropicalismo borrowed the most directly so it is really interesting i mean the title i mean krishnanda's a you know and one of the name is a name for krishna that so the hindu deity so there's a kind of evocation of what are already by that point very well established psychedelic themes of appealing to the asian mystical traditions uh even though there's not that much of the music is i would say it's not i mean it's not obvious most of the tracks don't sound like they've got any obvious indian influence but there's something about that kind of meditative quality of the music which is obviously um pretty striking and i think it is yeah that's juxtas the juxtaposition of that meditative quality with the sort of very highly developed percussive sophistication it does make it pretty compelling yeah i mean the cover is really interesting as well it's obviously quite psychedelic it's kind of concentric circles in blue and red and green and yellow and at the center is i guess i i don't know if it's a I can't see it clearly enough from where I'm looking. It's at a gorilla. Precise, it is a gorilla. Okay, yeah, it's a very yeah. small image. A gorilla with a child, is it? Or is it just... Or there's anyway, there's another... There's Maybe there's human is kind of superimposed or there's something which... Uh, and there's all the signs of the zodiac and the kind of, you know, the lines that kind of demarcate a compass and uh, hands. And it's very... It's highly symbolized, but obviously there's something about embrace alternative forms of it's very cosmic and alternative forms of thinking and you know uh, but it reminds me of one of the tracks we had on the one of our shows for patrons uh, what we're listening to shows i played this uh hermes this georgie ben track about hermes Tris, trismegistus the, mm. sort of esoteric the mythical or quasi-mythical founder of western esotericism there's the i you know there, there's obviously there's this interest in sort of cosmological theories which try to get at the sense of mystical connection or just organic connection between different forms of life and different aspects of the cosmos and the universe. And that's obviously, the cover is obviously playing with that. But it is very distinctive and it's very weird. It is very weird. I mean, it's sort of, in this sense, it does remind me of a, of a lot of the sort of psychedelic cover art and art from the west coast from the same period because to some extent these psychedelic conventions are still evolving and you just you you know you haven't yet they haven't yet resolved themselves into the specific cliches 
that would become more familiar later on. So you get the, you you get the sort of spiral patterns and bits of paisley or zodiac signs or magical symbols, or, or sort of occult symbols. But then you might just get a gorilla stuck in the middle of it, <laughs> like and which is pretty. It's pretty. It's definitely worth googling the cover actually, uh, if you if you haven't seen it. Pretty interesting to look at. I mean, actually, the um, the Santo Daime Church, the Ayahuasca Church in Brazil, which is this sort of syncretic religion, which, you know, much like other traditions like Santa Maria and Voodoo in other, pla- and Voodoo in other places, is drawing on bits of Christianity, bits of Catholicism, bits of, bits of, bits of 19th, 20th century esotericism, bits of indigenous religion, but which uses um, ayahuasca, this very potent psychedelic uh, brew, which is traditionally used by some shamanic cultures in the Amazon. It's, that the that actually gets going from the 30s. So ah, it's well established. Yeah. It's well established by the mm. 1970s, and there's ba- there isn't any real sort of illusion in any of the reading we've done to this being any part of the context for any of this music that we're talking about. But given that we haven't really found, there isn't really any information that we found in particular about Santos is that, um, you know, it's perfectly possible that he would have had exposure and that he would have had, a, you know, experience with, you know, pretty heavy, really heavy psychedelics. And uh, that would sort of explain something about the very developed and at times quite dark, uh, nature of the sounds on that record. I've got to say, I, I mean, Ayahuasca is really, it's very old. It's a really old practice, but it's completely outside my experience. You know, I miss, I always say my, my experience of psychedelics, like in the 90s, was really, you know, makes marks me out as part, part of a sort of big generation that runs from sort of the 50s to the 90s, I think, where our experience of psychedelics was, it was basically taking acid and thinking about it in terms of Asian contemplative traditions and practices drawn from those. Then what's happened more recently in recent decades is people have become increasingly interested in these shamanic traditions, which is much more about like spirit journeys than it is about sort of meditation and cosmic bliss out and the experiences are often, you know, they're very, very heavy compared to anything Tim or I would ever have done, or make a lot of the people we've talked about on the show have ever done. And how all that, how all that feeds into the background to Brazilian music, I've got no idea, and I haven't, I have yet to find any good literature about it that goes this far back. Um, I found people writing about it again, going sort of going back to the eighties. Because this stuff becomes a lot more publicly visible from from around the eighties, but I've really got no idea. Given that, I mean, the the church, these Ayahuasca churches did exist in the sixties and seventies, and presumably it meant that people could get have really, these really intense experiences. But to what extent, if at all, they had any relationship with any of the music we've talked about is, is entirely speculative and. I get the impression from most of what we read about it is that for most of the musicians we're talking about at the time, it would have been seen as something quite old fashioned, like something that wasn't really connected to the kind of modern Brazil they saw themselves as being part of. But I really don't know, but it's certainly possible. 
I mean, the other possibility, the other possibility is that you know LSD was beginning to circulate as well. I mean, yeah, no, not, that's a given. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a given. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. a but, but that's a different question. It's yeah. a different. There's no question. You know, LSD was circulating and people were experimenting with it as, but that as part of a general. But 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 I think what's interesting from given some of the thematics we've been exploring the past few episodes is, you know, if you're Brazilian in 1968, mm-hmm. you're a Brazilian student taking LSD. That's all of a piece with a general exploration of Western forms and kind of emergent kind of american forms like what your relationship is to sort of indigenous brazilian psychedelic tradition i've really got no idea um without music life would be a mistake all right so the first track i was going to play is um an astrid gilberto track this is astrid gilberto uh, one of the icons of brazilian modern music uh, first became really famous as the singer of the most famous version of the girl from Ipanema. The, she has one German parent, one Brazilian parent, and has this quite distinctive like manner and look and voice, very sort of angelic quality to the voice. And this track is one that I've always really loved. This is a cover of a track that was recorded like the same year or a few months before the previous year uh, by Chicago. The track is called Beginnings. And it's just a very interesting arrangement. It takes this quite elaborate sort of rock track, sort of acid rock track, basically, and it puts it through uh, a sort of bossa nova filter, makes it a lot softer, but it does retain quite a lot of the drama and it retains quite a lot of the... I mean, it to some extent enhances the rhythmic quality sort of later on in the track, which really builds up. And it you know, has this kind of orchestral drama about it as well. And it's a really powerful and evocative track, like one of, probably one of my favourite covers, actually, of any, any track by anyone. So this is, this is Astrid Gilberto from her 69 album, uh, 17th of September, 1969, uh, and the track is Beginning. It's only the beginning of what I wanna feel forever. It's only the beginning of what I wanna feel forever. Okay, so shall I talk about Georgie Ben? Yes. Okay. Well, so this is, uh, I'll try not to get carried away with this with this record, but I think I'm going to find it hard. Um, this is the eponymous uh, album released by Georgie Ben in 1969. Uh, we might have mentioned it in passing very briefly uh, in the last um, episode on Brazil, although I don't know if we really did um i know that we were thinking about it but then sort of decided that although it sometimes gets linked to tropicalismo it really it sounds quite very different although it does hook into some of the thematics but i do think in ultimately a very different way uh we did talk about um georgie ben at the end of the the first brazil episode though and we sort of talked a bit about um you know debut album 1963 samba esquema novo um 
And then he had another album out in 67, Bidu Silencio No Brooklyn. And actually, I just even bought that the other day, having uh, re- you know listened to some of the music on it for that episode. So it's fantastic. And this was this this just to kind of recap 67, supposedly the year or the year before Tropicalismo broke through. And th- that particular track was is, you know, the album is energized, it's kind of driving, it's kind of, you know, it's more rocking, if you like, than most Bossa Nova that's uh, being released. It's got a wailing guitar, it merges samba and rock. Um, so we could sort of say that at this particular moment, Georgie Ben is definitely ahead of the game and is anticipating what tro- Tropicali will do with its embrace of Western rock. Um, but somehow or other, um, you know, that was, um, you know, but yeah, somehow or other, Georgie Ben was actually doing it ahead of the people who ended up becoming most associated with the sound. I think one of the reasons is that, um, you know, unlike so much of the Tropicalia music we listened to or Tropicalismo music we listened to last week, um, this 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 particular recording doesn't kind of leave one with the impression that sort of somehow Brazilian musical practices are being sort of, you know, if not abandoned, then made subservient to a kind of a Western aesthetic. Anyway, that's the, that's a bit of the background. And then in 1969, Georgie Ben... Um, released this this eponymous album um and it's sometimes cited as a example of of a tropicalia album but again if you know i've listened re-listened to it numerous times uh, over the last few weeks because it has always been a favorite album but then i didn't play it for a few years i think or at least a year and now it's back out uh, and it's on the on the platter kind of you know a lot and again, it just doesn't sound like the uh, other music that Tropicalia artists were releasing in sort of 68, early 69, even though it coincides with it. And again, it's not because there's no experimentation or exploration or even a certain embrace of kind of Western aesthetics. It's because it always seems to place a certain, you know, idea of Brazil- Brazilian music whatever that might be it's obviously not a straightforward term to define but that or but that seems to whatever it is be at the center of the, of the recording so this album was georgie ben's sixth album so he's already kind of been around for a little while and is quite uh, established that may also partly distinguish him from some of his peers and he was released on Philips, um, and Georgie Ben had already recorded with Philips, uh, but then he sort of returned to the label um, for this one. Uh, and the thing that, you know, one of the things that kind of stands out is it kind of develops, it really, it's sort of very much a samba uh, album. And it, it, it's on this one in particular that Georgie Ben introduces this kind of very particular um, hard rhythmic style of guitar strumming. Um, that would sort of go on to inspire a, a subgenre, I suppose we should call it, uh, that is sometimes referred to samba rock. Although I don't really know if it's kind of how to what extent that subgenre actually exists in people's imagination or you know parts of the music industry or, or what. But this is what kind of this is what stands out, and this was this was kind of new, and it was partly inspired by kind of you know events that you know were were going on you know arguably globally in the late 1960s uh, which involved western rock but not only but it does it is more it is more energized uh, and more heavily rhythmic and it's got more presence and kind of dynamism than than a lot of the bossa nova that was coming out in the in the previous era era um, and in addition to this, um, there are plenty again of elements of, of psychedelic uh, music um, 
where you have process sounds and you have, you know, there's lots of echo and there's a sort of, I would say, I suppose what you could call a sort of swirling sensation to the music, um, an, an instability, a fading in and out of certain of certain instruments or the voice that give a sense of kind of everything being in, in motion. Uh, and, you know, and often slightly discordant sort of sounds also coming in at these moments. And th- a lot of this happens on a lot of the records, most of them last between two and a half minutes and four minutes, yet the amount of information or music that's in each record kind of makes it feel like it could be a lot longer, although all of them feel so sweet that they kind of just also feel like quite short, but the, they, they all manage to kind of take you on this journey. I used to sort of think that you had to have a long record to go on a journey, but with these ones, it's like, it's amazing the economy of the journey. So let's let's kind of, break up the talk for just a little bit and hear one of the tracks uh, there were there are so many records that that could be picked out but uh, the one that i thought we'd do is i'm pretty sure it's the first track on side b the the lyric goes take it easy my brother charlie but the the album the title of the track on the album is take it easy my brother charles take it easy my brother charlie take it easy meu irmão de cor take it easy my brother charlie Take it easy, meu irmão de cor Pois a rosa é uma flor A rosa é uma cor A rosa é um nome de mulher Rosa é a flor da simpatia A flor escolhida no dia Do primeiro encontro do nosso dia Com a vida So this is a it's just such a great hour. I mean, I, I, to be on, to be, I hadn't really because the lyrics are in Portuguese, and because I hadn't particularly read about this album, I'd mainly listened to it previously. Um, I hadn't kind of realised, you know, where it goes lyrically, particularly. Uh, I have to admit. Uh, now I've done a bit more reading, I have a, a better, more, a better idea, and the the lyrics are sort of are quite quirky, but and they deal with this range of intersecting themes of sort of everyday life, lots of romances with women. Um, but uh, certainly a very developed self-awareness, a sense of a way of being, and also what we could certainly now clearly call an Afro-Brazilian identity. So the opening track, I'm just going to go through a bit of this because it's kind of, um, you know, it's just like really interesting. But Oh, sorry, it's not the opening track. Yeah, the opening track is um, Criola, which translates as black woman. And Criola, and it portray- the song portrays a, a black street market um laborer uh a woman who trans called creola i oh no sorry yeah well referred to as creola who transcends her sort of you know working class social status when she performs as a carnival queen during the brazilian carnival and she's described in in the lyrics as a child of african nobles who by geographic mistake was born in brazil on carnival day um and the final verse of this song actually quotes from uh is quotes from the back cover of Gilberto Gill's 1968 eponymous album which praises black female beauty but it seems to be um somewhat recontextualized the line here um and the line that um Georgie Ben writes is and as the poet Gill once said black is the sum of all the colors you black women are colorful by nature so, so this is an example. I mean, he's combining lots of things here. He's combined. There's the kind of romance side. There's the attraction to women side. There's kind of you know maybe having a good time side with also 
you know, a, what I, what comes across as a form of, you know, it's a feminism. It's, you know, it's the carnival queen who kind of rises above her status, social status. Um, and it's about class identity. And it's about, you know, Brazilian kind of, you know, black identity. Um, all coming together in the opening track of an album. It's like, wow. Um, it just feels kind of really major. So there's, there's a lot of thematics here. Um, about being black and you know about women and about also just kind of a way of you know a, a way of of kind of leading one's life and I think this this to a certain extent comes through quite clearly on this this take it easy my brother Charles um, uh, and the lyrics again this is obviously from a borrowed translation they run ever since the first man marvelously set foot on the moon. I feel more in tune with my rights and principles and the dignity to free myself. This is why with no prejudice I sing. And then there's various things that he sings about. And then he says, take it easy, my brother, Charlie, because I even sing it to the girl I love, the girl I desire, the girl I await, the girl I adore. Uh, and this figure of Charles, Charlie, reappears on the final track as well, Charles Andro 45, uh, where this, where he's characterised now as an underworld criminal figure from a favela, described as the Robin Hood of the ghetto. But then the song tracks him going to prison, prison, but then returning in a in a in a celebratory moment to his neighbourhood when he's released from prison. So there's a lot of social consciousness here. And I suppose one of the things that, oh, and also, well, there's the, the cover as well, which is just very psychedelic. Um, and it's kind of, kind of pop art or illustration. And it's got various symbols of contemporary Brazilian culture with a depiction of Jorge Ben at the, at the beginning. I've loved, loved this album for ages. Um, and it's just re-listening to it a, a, quite a lot, um, especially in the last few weeks. I kind of think it's just love it. I'm just can't get enough of this album right now i don't know what else to say really and it's got this it just seems to have everything it's got a kind of you know a fluidity and ease and optimism a confidence a sense of humor flourishes and then it will go into you know it's, it's very it's very beautiful it's obviously joyous in many ways and then it goes into it's just got all these very beautifully and you know very technically adroitly introduced psychedelic elements that just that mean that it never just s stays in the in the realm of being a kind of samba you know a samba rock kind of pop oriented you know album full of really anthemic songs that you could just hum as you go along the street um but actually musically are really kind of you know evolved and um and of course this kind of just takes us back into what we were saying in the, in the first episode on the the relationship between samba and Afro-Brazilian culture and Brazilian identity and the way that Brazilian identity had, you know, up until that point had been organised around the idea that there were the indigenous, you know, peoples and then there were the European colonisers and that in coming together this was Brazil and the Afro-Brazilians, you know, slaves and post-slave peoples hadn't re really been integrated into this idea of what Brazil was and Samba began to change that. And this is almost the end of that kind of marks a symbolic end to that period. This is like what it means to be totally at ease with oneself because someone, no one can record this album who is not totally at ease with their place in the world. Um, so it mark, I think it marks a sort of arrival uh, and a moment of beauty. Love is, love is, love is the message. 
We're making this podcast because we believe that alternative history and radical ideas should be given as much airtime as possible, yet it's increasingly difficult for knowledge of this kind to circulate through the mainstream media or the university sector. We love doing it and we're committed to making sure it's available for free to anyone who wants it. But at the end of the day, for us and our producer, Matt, this is what we do for our jobs. This kind of work isn't just a hobby and we've each permanently lost a significant chunk of our regular income due to the pandemic. We won't be able to carry on doing this without some financial support. So if you have the means and you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks. So uh, the next track I was going to play is this quite obscure record that I don't have a great deal to say about, apart from to play a bit of it. This is a um, this is by a singer who has been active for decades. She's still alive under the stage name Claudia, although her actual name is Maria das Grassas Rallo. Um, she'll be in her seventies now, and. The track was written by one of the most famous songwriting teams in Brazilian popular music of the past few decades. That's Roberto Carlos and Erasmo Carlos, who are not brothers, apparently. They just both have, happen to have the same surname. Um, uh, both of them somewhat associated originally in their youth with the Young Guard movement we mentioned a couple of episodes ago. And the track is called, is a sort of gospel soul uh, derived track, and it is called Jesus Christo. Jesus Christo, Jesus Christo, Jesus Christo, where is the So yeah, so it's a track with an explicitly Christian lyric and uh, slogan. Although my understanding, a chorus, I should say, but my under having read translations of the lyrics, yeah, it's a pretty vague and somewhat mystical appeal to Christianity as a sort of uh, spiritual ideal. And in my experience, it's a very uh, powerful dance floor track. You know, whenever I play this, people go really crazy and what everybody wants to know what it is and but it does raise interesting questions about playing music with this sort of you know explicitly religious lyrics and this christian theme and i know you're not massively comfortable with that are you yeah well i don't know i don't want to uh, we we did i did ask you about this track before we we came on air just to check what your relationship was to it uh, i didn't know it before you said that it was there was one that you wanted to play uh, and discuss on the show and uh you know, it didn't i did it's it didn't really work for me i'm afraid um i think it's the i mean i don't mind the music and i i like gospel music generally but um i find it hard to get gospel music where i think that the um lyrics work i mean sometimes the lyrics is a sort of a positivity sometimes they're um don't seem to be you know um too instructional you know, stand on. We've talked about stand on the word on a, a previous a previous uh, episode. I mean, at least there it's sort of stand on the word, the word of God. 
lots of people. You understand the lyrics of that song say, we must not question. Yes, yeah, no, I do. The good law. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) But to me, it's... about as dogmatic as it can get. It doesn't it doesn't seem to me didactic in Christian terms. And it's the didacticism that I find I have a struggle with uh, in part, I think. But it's also just this is in this particular song, it's that the it's just the lyric is mainly Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And I just have this reaction to that kind of music, which is that I don't really I wouldn't want to listen to it at home, never mind dance to it particularly. And but it's just it's not a it's not really a value judgment. It's just something I sort of struggle to deal with. But I'm I just think there's a bit of a you know, like ideas of God are a bit are less specific than ideas of Jesus, let's put, you know, I suppose. Uh also, I mean, if we're talking about stand on the word, I think the music is incredible. And I don't think the I I quite like this record, but I don't think it's incredible. Um, I mean, Stand on the Word has been played on, you know, loft-style dance floors since 1980, whatever it was, three or whenever, and it still doesn't feel, it still sounds fresh. Um, I think it's a very special record. And it's the kids, you know, so there's a night at the piano. So this doesn't work in the same way for me, but it's partly, it's it's partly, I'm also just explaining if, if Stand on the Word had lyrics that are, you know, about Jesus, very explicitly that repeat, you know, about the centrality of Jesus, 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 I wouldn't be, I wouldn't play it and I probably wouldn't dance to it. And it's not about being anti-Christian, it's about playing something that people, you know, that this is my perception of about what, what works on dance floor. I mean, it's interesting that you have such a good response to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't. I mean, for me, I just think I, I think there are loads of lyrics that are really dodgy in, in tracks that we play. I think "Stand on the Words" I think it's just ridiculous. I think to think you can play "Stand on the" if you're going to worry about any lyric at all. I mean, that one's just advocating for you know pure fundamentalist dogmatism, but like really explicitly. So, I, I find that less problematic than just evoking some abstract idea of Jesus as some sort of spiritual ideal. Like it's. It's not telling. This song isn't telling you what your relationship to Jesus should be. Or "Stand on the Word" is very clear. You know, it, it took me years before I even knew what the lyrics of "Stand on the Word" were about. I hadn't got it. "Stand on the Word." "Stand on the Word." What? <laughs> we must it's... not question the good Lord. It literally says, "We must not question the good Lord." Have anyway. faith in God and trust His word. We don't know. Well, we don't know when it's complete. I mean, it's it's not. It's advocating within different schools of Christian theology. It's advocating for like the most reactionary, the most dogmatic sort of Calvinist determinism. It's like it's appalling. It's an appalling lyric. Like we, should, I mean, if we, if you're going to care about lyrics at all, we should never ever play that record. It's absolutely appalling. As I I'm saying, think, I'm just saying that because it doesn't have the word, it doesn't repeat Jesus Christ about fifty times over. That it comes across a bit differently to me, but. Yeah, well, but I, I take your point. I take your. I mean, I think there's. Um, you look. There's. There are ways. There are. You know. You. I'm not saying you. you you're making bad points. I'm just saying how I respond to. No, I understand. Lyrics. I don't. I just. To me, I'm completely indifferent to this stuff. I mean, there are. I mean, there are. I'm forgetting what the tracks are. I mean, but there's certainly some Alice Coltrane tracks that I really like. They are prayer. You know, they are. There are. They are prayers, um, and they do evoke. You know, in the way that the, the in the way that the. Um, the Pedro Santos album might be titles Krishnanda, but to me, I'm not particularly conscious of the of the titles or the lyrics having religious content. And 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 also, yeah, clearly, sure. I don't speak Portuguese. Um, 
you know, like with, you know, we talked about the the link between, you know, Santeria and C- Cuban music and the deities of, yeah. of Santeria. And I'm not, I, I don't, I've got to the point in my life where I've never, you know, I, I don't straightforwardly believe in kind of a, a singular God, but I've become over, you know, maybe it's the last five or 10 years, a little less kind of dogmatic that I'm, a, let's say, an, a, you know, an avowed atheist. I have a lot less investment in that. Um, so these are, then you get into a world of, you know, of, of, you know, various deities and, and, you know, possibilities that, you know, for me just kind of hover around in a, you know, in a quite an appealing seductive universe. And as long as something doesn't come across as being too dogmatic, thou shalt believe in this to the exclusion of everything else. Um, I'm, I don't mind it. And, you know, if the language is, uh, you know, uh, is, is in, not in English, then it doesn't really, I probably haven't got a clue anyway. But overall, I'm just, you know, something seems to... So the, but the Alice Coltrane actually is, I forget the, the particular tracks, but they are, they are, it's very clear that these are tracks that are recorded, you know, in worship of a day of, um, I don't know if it's a, it's a Hare Krishna or I think it's a Hare Krishna track. And I, I really like the record, but I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't play that one. It's a little bit too specifically devotional. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I complete. I do completely understand, but it, mm. but the explicit devotion doesn't doesn't really doesn't bother me. Mm. Interesting it, to me, it operates at a certain level of affect. Yeah, you yeah. Know, you think you can sort of tune into it as an evocation of, like I say, I've got no problem with an idea of Jesus as a spiritual ideal. It sure, doesn't mean, doesn't mean I have to believe that he's actually the incarnation of the one God or. Yeah, anyone who believes that is, <laughs> I don't agree with. That's so, a, that's also true. I mean, and that's also the distinction between whoever Jesus might have been and what became Christianity, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, I would, I've always, I mean, the person who sort of shared your attitude to not playing anything that referred to any sort of specific deity or religious figure was David. I mean, David wouldn't have a like, wouldn't have little. He wouldn't have little. Um, he liked to sometimes have a what he called a shrine at mm. party, but he got but, rid of it, didn't he? That's the point. The, the original but, but also, shrine was was with Buddhas and everything. But um, yeah, well, he. I mean, later on, I mean, at least when we started doing parties with him, he still liked to have one, but it had to just be like he had a little Superman. Mm. It had to be. He liked having sort of pop cultural figures, yeah, but yeah. he didn't want. <laughs> he didn't want even indeed Buddhas or you know Hindu deities and. I just, I get, I'm, and I'm, I am a lot more sort of casual about that stuff. But I tend to think, you know, because I tend to think it, it's all, it can all be read as yeah. expressions of some general sort of ecumenical law. No, I can, I, look, I sympathise, and there's obviously something, you know, whether we whether we want to call it spiritual or religious, there's something that goes on on a dance floor that taps into these feelings of, you know higher consciousness and you know at least departing from you know we somehow escape our sense of you know a boundary and limited self and enter into something which is you know more more collective and out outer body so it can work i think with david i think he probably from what i understand but i don't remember too many specific conversations with him about this but i think he was wary partly of appearing to be siding with a specific set of religious beliefs and yeah, i think yeah, and i think course, he was also yeah. wary of of um offending someone let's say because you have yeah, 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 you have one sure, icon yeah. but not another or something 
No, for sure. And also, it's sort of, you know, my attitude is, you know, it, it isn't, I mean, my attitude is pretty much one that you can only, you can sort of only have if you're, if you're a bit atheistic, because it doesn't, you know, I, I'm, I, because I'm fairly indifferent to, you know, what, what, I mean, it, it, it is based on a sort of, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, but a sort of perennialism and you know, a sort of idea where there's, there's fairly generic forms of spirituality and spiritual experience and they just get, they take different forms in different contexts. But of course, as we've said on the show before, that's, that itself is a highly problematic perspective and I understand that. I'm not entirely sure, actually, that me playing songs with Jesus, lots of lyrics about Jesus isn't slightly wrong i think it isn't wrong but uh, i think i can defend it but <laughs> you, you've had it you made a good attempt <laughs> i know well, I, I think it's um, no, i think all yeah. the other thing is, i mean the trouble is part of my reason for this actually and this does call back to other stuff on the show and i'm sorry matt i know this is all going to need a lot of editing but i think we're finally <laughs> saying something slightly interesting here there, oh there was a, there was like eight years of my life at least where i, I stopped listening to reggae altogether because I didn't want to hear anything about Jar Rastafari, okay? Because I didn't want to hear it, because I was like a militant atheist. And because, you know, I was conscious that Rastafarianism was, you know, apart from very fringe strands of it, was like explicitly homophobic, for example. And I just didn't didn't want to. So I saw, and I sort of think, well, to be honest, like especially given the social politics of mainstream Rastafarianism, or kind of gender and sexuality issues, if you're going to keep playing records where they talk from the seventies, where they're going on about Jar Rastafari, you, there isn't really anything you, you should feel is off limits after that. And so either you're not even going to play that. Or you're going to stop worrying about it, and you know, have, have have the gospel song. So that that is my sort of logic. But I, a, a bit of me is still always slightly, you know, remembers being a very earnest, very sincere sort of a post punk in the late eighties, early nineties, and thinking, well, you shouldn't really even be playing songs like that. And I and I can see the argument for that, to be honest. And I and I do sometimes worry that it's you know, being a straight man makes it a little bit easier to tolerate. Uh, some of these things than it would be otherwise so i do feel a little bit anxious sometimes and a bit guilty about just casually playing that stuff but like i say i sort of think if, if you're not going to play cloudy at singing about jesus and you really probably shouldn't be singing bomb you know be listening to a, you know peter tosser or whoever singing about jaros the far eye yeah, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a good point, and I'm not advocating the bad. The bad. No, I know you're uh, not. I know, you know, I know, and I do, and I do play gospel, but I have found myself veering towards lyrics that seem to be a little, you know, not pushing, not pushing a certain idea too forcefully. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting area. Anyway, let's get on to the next. Yeah. Track. So the next track is Airto, and it's return to forever which is on the album free so as we've been talking for a little while let's listen to some music Erto Moreira was born um, in Itiapolis in Brazil 
and uh, drummer percussionist uh, who actually moved to the United States uh, in 1968. So he would have been 27. So just doing a quick bit of dodgy maths, that means he was born in yeah 1941. And um, I mean, what we have here is a Brazilian musician kind of going to live in the United States. And this is kind of an echo, a little bit more of some of the episodes when we were, were recording, in particular uh, um, episodes about South Africa or African music, the number of musicians who ended up kind of going to live in, you know, sometimes in Europe, but often, quite often in the United States, in particular um, New York. Um, so Erto is one of these kind of key figures. He's a, a prolific musician, actually, and I do I do really love love his music, and I do have quite a fair amount of it. Um, and he is kind of he did sort of uh, be- emerge in in this you know period living in uh, the United States in the late sixties onwards as becoming very involved in this kind of you know this this emerging sound of fusion, which we we began to talk about at the very beginning of this series, which. We seem to have started maybe about two years ago at this point, but I know that it is it is it isn't quite as long as that. But it's been a really fascinating uh, journey that I think we've both enjoyed. Anyway, um, Erto worked with Miles Davis uh, indeed for a couple of years uh, between 1969 and 1970. Then he joined Weather Report. Then he joined Chick Corea's band Return to Forever. Um, and he was playing drums um, on on that lineup for the, that that. Uh, so, do we know if Chick Corea's Return to Forever predates this track? I think it does. Return to Forever. I think it does. Um, okay, I'm pretty sure it does um, because it's in ninety. It's in the but it's in the same year that he that uh, Erto releases his debut album Free. Uh, and for that, he forms his own supergroup, and it and that also features Chick Corea on keys, uh, Hubert Lewis on flute, uh, Joe Farrell on reed on reeds, and then you know um, to add to the kind of you know star quality lineup of the album is Keith Jarrett on piano and George Benson on guitar, and uh, Erto's wife uh, Flora Purim who has had a bit of a revival of interest in her, at least in the UK and I'm guessing Europe and very hopefully the United States as well and, and beyond um, in the last year or two, really, as far as I'm aware. Uh, Erto's wife, Flora Purim, also sings on Free, um, although not on, on Return to Forever. Um, so yeah, my, my understanding is that it was kind of, it was a kind of a Brazilianized, if you, uh, and, and highly percussive kind of reworking of the, um, Return to Forever by Czech Korea, um, which had come out earlier in that year. Um, I mean, there's certainly one of the things that my, I mean, my, I mean, I like, you know, I like, I love the Czech Korea as well, actually. I don't just like it. I think it's fantastic, uh, recording and I'd really like Chick career, but this one is just kind of has a sort of indeed it's it takes this sort of jazz rock um you know energy if you like an aesthetic and kind of adds elements of kind of you know blasting kind of you know orchestration and you know emotive power and energy and crescendos uh, as well as a very, you know, highly percussive kind of feel, which is where Airto's coming from, and uh, just re- reworks it in in that in that um, in that mode. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's just it's just got a, you know it's got enough energy. I mean, it feels like it's the, one of these kind of records that is like well, where if if you are going to de, it's not an obvious record to DJ with really at all. I would say, uh, and it's the kind of thing that you, if you do play it, maybe it's something that would go kind of early because it just doesn't have a regular kind of pulse that is what you know helps most records along when you're when people are really in in that mood. Um, and it could go early, but there's a level of intensity to it that kind of just sort of demands it kind of, you know, go in the middle of a party. It was hearing you, it was hearing you in particular, Gem, but also Cedric and Cyril play in the first time I got to sort of go all, all night to a, a Beauty and the Beat party. Again, it was back in, I think this must have been May 2017 and sort of playing not this record, but records that, you know, were of a similar ilk. They weren't just kind of regular dance records that made, you know, makes you think, well, actually, yeah people don't are, are okay to sort of take a break for a couple of minutes in a certain interlude if that's going to then lead you to something that's kind of you know very powerful uh which includes kind of rhythm so uh it's one of those records anyway but it kind of it just is just uh i don't have loads more to say about it but it's just a, a record i really liked and, and it kind of just re-evokes re the, the fusion discussion we had all those weeks or months ago Certainly yeah, well, a couple of the records we're playing today, I, I would classify as sort of Brazilian fusion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, and yeah, it is a really, arguably, it is one of the most perfect evocations of this Afro psychedelic aesthetic. I think really that this Brazilian fusion stuff. I mean, Brazilian jazz is almost unique in, I think, in its ability to sort of combine like a fully jazz complexity with a real dance ability. A lot of the time, I think that that's already been well established um, for quite a long time. By the time we get to the early seventies, and then when they start bringing in these kind of fusion elements, these sort of psychedelic elements, I mean, it is. I mean, it's it's quite striking that it's it's definitely coming out of that fusion moment, but it's yeah, it's bringing it's drawing on samba more than rock, whereas something like Weather Report is drawing on rock more, and so the effect is you know this real percussive fluidity. And this real danceability, which produces something really sort of extraordinary, and yeah, I really, really love this stuff. This is this is it's one of those it's one of those records. That like at, at the moment when I'm listening to it, I, I always think, oh, this is just the greatest thing ever recorded. This is like this is the only this is just the perfect music. This is the you can't get any better than this. Now, I, I sort of stop thinking that as soon as when the next track comes on. But this one, <laughs> this, I, this is you know. There's not that many records I think that about, and they're mostly from this period, sort of 70 to 74, from some part of the world. And yeah, this really is one of them. Mm. I mean, the way the, I mean, the flute is just, it's really, it's really reminiscent of like the flute playing, the bansuri, the bamboo flute on sort of Indian classical records. You know, mm. it's really reminiscent of that in its kind of fluidity and its virtuosity, but the way it manages to, keep to a pulse but it is it is danceable this record i think mm. and uh, i think i think more so when you hear it kind of on vinyl on a big sound system and if you just hear it streaming through oh well definitely and all, not just a big format. sound system but obviously what we what you were referring to is a you know a very fine big stereo sound system i mean it's not yeah. the, it's the kind of record that would not work on a pa system in all in all likelihood no, that's true. Uh, that's true. I mean, so I you know I know there are plenty of people out there, um, some of them much more knowledgeable about this stuff than I'll ever be, including Francois Kavorkian, who just argue that you know 
the DMB kind of technology speakers kind of are way ahead of, you know, the Clipshawns and the rest of it in their kind of the, their range and all the rest of it, uh, their ability to pick up sub bass. And, but, you know, I think our, ex- our experience is to find listening to stereo equipment more pl- engaging and pleasurable. And uh, so we can certainly say it works very well on the kind of equipment we use, where it's harder to guarantee it will work well on a PA system. All right, so the next track I'm going to talk about, this is a track by a group called uh, Novos Bayanos, which just means New Bahians. Bahians meaning people from Bahia, which is the... Uh, the northern province in Brazil that we've referred to quite a lot, that a lot of the artists we've been playing the past couple of weeks come from. And uh, Novos Baianos are really remembered in Brazil. I mean, they are, I think, the nearest equivalent would be something like the Grateful Dead in the States. They're this sort of iconic countercultural group. They were seen as not being particularly explicitly political, but absolutely associated with counterculture. I mean, the counterculture is the term that comes up all the time from what I've seen of the academic literature on it, for example, um, in English and I think also in Portuguese. And they're seen as having this, uh, they have this sort of communal lifestyle. They're associated with a sort of communal lifestyle that people were experimenting with in the early 70s. They're associated indeed quite explicitly with psychedelics. Um, but they also have these very distinctively Brazilian features to their lifestyle and their image. So two things really worth uh, drawing out here. On the one hand, they really uh, adopted... Um, well, were adopted by uh, uh, João Gilber- Gilberto, the kind of one of the great uh, iconic figures of Bossa Nova, and they really adopted him as a sort of mentor, or he adopted them as mentees. Which is really hard to think of an equivalent. I mean, be, this would be like a sort of, I mean, it would, be, it would, I guess, it would be like Miles Davis or somebody like that from the, you know, somebody who really had the peak of their fame in the fifties then, you know, becoming really good friends with a band like The Grateful Dead. It would be something like that. If we think of Bossa Nova in a way as sort of equivalent to cool jazz in the States. And so really sort of extraordinary. And and the other thing is they made playing soccer like a big part of their lifestyle. I mean, obviously, this is, we're entering into the golden age. I suppose we're already, are we already in the, the golden age of Brazilian soccer? By the, You know more about football than me. But so, well, they, uh, 1970... Um, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. They won the World Cup, I'm pretty sure. So yes, yeah. Was well, so was Pe- I mean Pele? Well, yeah, Pele exactly. I think I think I don't know if he deb- he might have debuted in six in an earlier World Cup. I seem to remember him playing, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah Pele is 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 yeah. It's, this is considered often to be as far as I can remember the peak Brazilian team. So yeah, it's a good point actually. Yeah, and so, and of course, Brazilian, you know, football on, in Brazil is widely seen as reaching the level of a sort of popular art form in a way which, you know, it doesn't in anywhere else. And it's, you know, the Brazilian team to this day are sort of beloved the, the world over for what's seen as their, their free flowing balletic, sort of egalitarian, kind of creative, sort of improvisational style of football. And 
yeah, so it was part a part of the sort of uh, image and lifestyle of Novos Bayanos was sort of playing a lot of football, like on on the beach or in the park or something. Um, yeah, one of their albums is called uh, Novos Bayanos FC. Um, but this is from their most famous album, uh, the title of which is. Um, Oh, I had this up and I've lost it. Oh, the title of which is in Portuguese is Acabu Chorare or Chorare, and it means no more crying. And it was widely understood as being a marking a deliberate break with the rather mournful tone of Brazilian music, or at least sort of experimental music of the previous a couple of years or few years, which was seen as typifying the response to the political repression on the part of people like Veloso, making these songs, which, you know, to contemporary ears sound incredibly beautiful, but are also somewhat mournful in their elegiac quality. Mm -hmm. Uh, So No More Crying was seen as this very deliberate uh, evocation of a sort of ethic of collective joy in the face of this... uh, darkness and depression which you know you can raise all kinds of questions about um and you can certainly you can certainly draw an analogy with what's coming out of you know people like the grateful dead in the states at the same time a kind of general appeals for love and peace as a way of countering the cultural and political demands of a highly very warlike and increasingly competitive society I mean, whether it's an effective political cultural strategy is a whole other question, but I really don't know enough about the political cultural debates of the period to say much more about it. I mean, I've only, there isn't that much written in English. I found one article uh, by uh, Jorge Cardoso Filoso from a 2014 edited collection in which he talks about all this. And he talks about the role played by to post-tropicalia intellectuals in the press in Brazil, really promoting the group, promoting the idea of them as this countercultural, uh, these countercultural tastemakers and exemplars. And the track itself we're going to play is one of the most popular tracks from this, their most famous album. Uh, the track is called um, Preta Pretinha. And that just means pretam just means black. I think just means black, and pretinia is the you know it's the diminutive, so it's like, like little black. Uh, I've seen various translations. I've seen it translated, for example, as little black beauty, but it seems very difficult to translate directly into English. And the lyrics, you know, it's quite. I mean, they seem to be just a general poetic and somewhat meditative evocation of. Um, you know, quite abstract themes, like a lot of the lyrics of these songs we've been talking about. But the music itself, uh, well, let's hear a bit, then we can comment a bit more. Preta, preta, pretinha Enquanto eu corri assim eu ia 
So that's uh, their most famous track, Novos Bayanos. And yeah, there's clearly, I mean, the way it's usually described and it seems quite accurate is it's bringing this kind of uh, rhythmic sensibility of bossa nova and some of the guitar techniques of bossa nova into a more directly rock-influenced um, context. You can definitely hear evocations of groups like the Rolling Stones, but there's also this very powerful sort of samba chorus uh, going on there. And what it produces overall is, again, a very interesting sound which is not a million miles away from the uh georgie ben track that we listened to but a little bit fuller a little bit more uh you know it's a larger group and you know they're doing that samba thing of making a large group singing together you know sound very powerful in a way which again it evokes some of the most effective qualities of gospel actually but in a much more secular way, obviously. So, and so for all those reasons, I think this comes together as a really uh, effective piece of music. And it's very, very exciting kind of manifestation of a certain kind of countercultural ideal of musical collective joy. Yeah, I really like this record. Uh, I think the Georges Ven reference is, is a good one. I mean, I think, uh, you know, what, what he did was clearly hugely influential and became it, to, to the point where unless you tra- track back the history, which I've attempted to do uh, now in part preparation for this episode, um, you, it's just one of these sounds that you just think has got to have been around forever. It's just such a, you know, that kind of this hard strumming that, you know, it's just like, it's so, it's just, uh, you just can't, you almost can't think that there was a time when people weren't playing the guitar in that way. Um, but it seems to have, you know, primarily emerged through Georgie Ben in this moment. And I think this is an example of how it kind of took off as a sound and just became sort of integral to, you know, Brazilian, Brazilian guitar playing style. Love is, love is, love is the message. Yeah, so we we ended up getting really kind of caught up in some of the discussions around this music, which I think is a tribute uh, to the to the music and the culture that surrounds it. Uh, but there are there are a few more tracks that we did want to talk about. But we really are probably pushing the time limit of this episode, so we're going to try and kind of race through the remaining selections. And the next one that I was going to pick out is by Tribo Masahi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The album is titled Estrelando. Embaixador. Again, I'm not quite sure how I should be pronouncing that. And I thought I'd play the opening track of the album, which is Farreua. F-A-R-E-U-A with an accent acute. And uh, this is was again a very little known kind of album. Um, uh, again, it's highly psychedelic. Uh, it seems to have been released in 1972, though it could have come out in 1970. Uh, it's heavily Afro-Brazilian in its sound and in its kind of the iconography of the album cover. 
Uh, but along with this kind of very emphasized Afro-Brazilian element, again, an element that we didn't really feel was too too much, too emphasized within Tropicalia. Uh, there's lots of psych- psychedelic references, funk, jazz, very heavy percussion, lots of screaming, grunting, and just a sense of, you know, in a way that isn't entirely dissimilar to the to the Santos album, a sense that it's very processed. There's lots of effects. Uh, there's no gap between any of the records on the first side. They're all effectively mixed together, which kind of adds to the sense of being on a, a swirling journey. Um, and again, this any was of kind the of... tracks? Sorry? You, you started using the word record when you mean track. Oh, did I say record? Because it's going to confuse did people. I? Oh, sorry. No, you've been doing, yeah, you've been doing it all day, I think. Really? Oh, yeah. sorry. Oh, fuck. Uh, yeah, this... I don't know why I've written track. Anyway, yeah, the, all the tracks are uh, are linked together on on both sides. And, um, yeah, just... Uh, it's a sound... Just a quote from the liner notes, which are... It's quite interesting. They say, this is a sound made in Brazil. All the members are Brazilians, but the goal is to show the young African music with all his distinctions that features the origin of the black continent's music. Uh, They do things like take some of the rhythms based on the kind of camel steps um, and other kind of, you know, somewhat quirky, improbable innovations like that. And uh, this was a a record that really, truly did disappear and was very obscure, but again was um, reissued not that long ago and uh, has become a bit of a cult record. And it's it's very, very obscure. Parts of it, it's very strange. Uh, I completely love it. So wanted to play a bit of it. And again, it's an example of the kind of, another example of music that's highly experimental but isn't obviously tapping into a Tropicalia tradition, but just a whole bunch of parallel traditions that I think we're arguing have emerged in parallel. Yeah, I mean, this weirdly sort of reminds me of things like, you know, the the more far out end of Cannes or the, you know, Pink Floyd albums like Source Full of Secrets and things like that, where they're really, they're being very... They've been listening to a sort of Verez and and sort of uh, experimental orchestral music. It sort of reminded me of that in in that sense. It's really um really sort of interesting. Um, okay, in a very marked contrast <laughs> with that. <laughs> yeah, well, here how, is, <laughs> how do we pick the how do we pick the order of these tracks? <laughs> well, we're doing them in chronological order. At least order. No, at least none of us are DJ. Neither of us are DJs. So. This is uh, Sivuka, Sivuka, uh, and uh, Sivuka's uh, quite well-known version of Ain't No Sunshine. Uh, Let's just hear it, and then I'll talk about it in a little bit. Uh, okay, so uh, Severino Diaz de Oliveira, uh, Oliveira, better known as Sivuca, was this Brazilian musician, and I haven't ever really been able to find out anything about him. I mean, it's just this album and this track 
has been quite well known, at least by people in London, since it used to get played on the, the London sort of jazz dance scene, the rare groove scene back in the 80s, I believe. Uh, and I'm really fond of it. It's one of these records that sort of, if I hadn't heard it on a dance floor, I think it, I couldn't really imagine playing it because it just sounds like a sort of easy listening tune. There's quite a lot of this, I have to say. We haven't played that much because there's so much other stuff to play on this sequence of tunes we've been playing. But... Um, you know, there's, uh, there's quite a few records I've got that are that really were, that were just marketed as like easy listening, sort of you know super commercial jazz records that because they have a sort of samba beat or a sort of bossa beat, they work really well on the dance floor. Um, Sivuka, I know, was from Brazil, but he was actually living in New York when this was recorded. He lived in New York. Uh, pretty much for most of the period of the dictatorships, I think. I know he was there between 64 and I think sort of 79. Um, and I don't really know anything else about him. I mean, in pictures, he's this he's this white, he's this already really old looking. Like by the time this was recorded, this was recorded, he was only in his early 40s. But I would have to say on the cover of the album, he looks about 60, like already. Mm. He looks like Father Christmas. He looks like Santa Claus. <laughs> no, he does. He's this big guy. He's quite fat, white guy with like a quite pale white guy with a big beard and sort of grey beard and grey hair. He looks like he God. <laughs> he doesn't look like a samba musician at all. Like, and I don't really, I've never really been able to find out anything about like, who even is this guy? Like, what, why, how is this happening? You know, he's not, he doesn't look brazilian at all but you know apparently he's a quite a popular musician and um and he does this really incredible incredibly affecting you know, <laughs> they're also very super super sweet almost sugary sweet uh version of no sunshine and, and there we have it there we go um yes and um oh, apparently he had albinism actually um. that's what i'm remembering is he had albinism that's one reason he looks so pale he doesn't look like someone with albinism, though. He just looks like a white guy. So, but um, I'm not a medical expert, so I can't judge. But anyway, mm. there we go. Great. That's, that's that. I, lo- I really like that record. And I, I think I'm not so sure. I mean, it is a sweet record, but I don't suffer from the, the sweetness. It's just, uh, and I much prefer it to the Royers. And um, it's very dynamic and jazzy and kind of works very well on the dance floor. So um, actually, my copy came back from Brazil. Uh, Sofia Custer, a friend of ours, went to Brazil and asked me if there are any records that I wanted her to pick up for me. And this was one of the ones she brought back. So I'm sure it's oh, not that nice. hard to get here. But, but um, it is. Uh, no, I, uh, I, like. I can't remember if mine, but mine might have been shit from Brazil. It was not expensive. Yeah, well, it's one of these records. There's, there's a number of them that aren't that expensive in Brazil. But then if you're going to pay the postage on Discogs to come here, yeah, yeah. it gets ridiculous. So. All right, okay, great. Record. All right, next record because we are speeding up, aren't we? Well, I won't talk about this in any detail, but it's uh, well. Let's let's say what it is first of all, which is uh, Gal Costa, uh, the track Milo Verde, uh, which is released on the 
just to try and say briefly, this is, you know, it's a classic Gal Costa album. Um, it got a great uh, reissue. I'm pretty sure it's from um, Mr. Bongo. Um, fairly, re- you know, some, I don't know, at some point in the last five to ten years. Um, yeah, we should take is not we keep mentioning this label and not uh, most people listening probably won't know I don't know but Mr Bongo is a British label a reissue label which reissues records these days from a lot of time and places but it really made mm. its reputation reissuing some classic yeah. Brazilian music from the 70s this is partly why a lot of this music that was very obscure and mm. a lot of these records that were extremely expensive and mm. hard to get a few years ago an awful lot of this stuff is now available like in very nice pressings very well mastered reissues mm. by Mr Bongo yeah. uh, it's one reason why a lot of this Brazilian music, especially from the 70s, has became so very available to like, British DJs in the past 10, 15 years. Yeah, good point. Yeah, they were in Soho, and I, I don't know when, but they're now in Brighton. I guess Soho just became too expensive. But yeah, so a very prolific label and well worth checking out. So uh, India is mixes, I think it's considered to, you know, it's, it's yeah, it mixes kind of, you know, folk with a slight acid tinge. Uh, elements of jazz fusion, elements of funk, so elements of rock. So it's quite eclectic. Uh, it, it does come out of a kind of tropicalismo kind of moment. It certainly consider it isn't seen to be as kind of groundbreaking as as the Tropicalia movement of, of 1968, of which Gal Costa played her, made her own significant contribution. Um, but it is a it is a beautiful, wide ranging, you know, really you know, uh, well recorded album. And uh, the track that we just listened to, Milo Verde, um, is a, originally a Portuguese folk song, uh, which then is kind of layered with, you know, Brazilian hand percussion and and uh, Gal Costa's voice, of course. And I partly play it because it's a great record. I also partly play it because, you know, one of the associations of this record is with uh, Cedric Sedlasond playing it at Beauty and the Bee and all our friends you know on a it's definitely one of his favorite records and it always goes down a treat so it seemed to be a, a good moment to to bring it into this show okay and finally a bit more of the Brazilian fusion this is Azimuth, like arguably uh, the best known of these sort of Brazilian fusion bands, well known for playing, producing tracks which are uh, complex but quite danceable. And this was uh, the group is was active from the beginning of the seventies in different forms, acting as a backing group to different people. I think they appeared on a soundtrack album, but they're self-titled debut of their official debut as azimuth was released in 75 this is a track from that called periscopio this just means periscope uh suitably optical title for a track uh by a band called azimuth and uh, in many ways this is very similar in tone and in the sources it's drawing on to the eto uh, track um and um i think it's just a good example of the way in which this kind of sound was developing and and would actually continue to develop in brazil in into the 80s yeah this very very exciting uh, combination of a very densely layered rhythmically complex music with these jazz and fusion tonalities which do uh, to use that adjective again do sort of uh, well it's a verb i'm about to use uh, which do sweeten the tone in a quite interesting way sort of compare especially compared to say their british and american counterparts so this is azimuth periscope 
great music. And that's, I think, one of the themes of this show is that, well, it's just so much great music. And I suppose that's a predictable thing to say, but uh, the context for this is just us once again reflecting on um, how much that was going on that didn't, wasn't kind of, di- you know, a direct expression of or even explicitly linked to tropicalismo, even though so much of what we hear about, you know, Brazilians radical moment in this period being, you know, happening around those musicians and that particular idea. It's not to diminish, demean that idea, obviously, it's just to say that it was a, it was a very wide palette with lots of, lots of sounds coming through and heading in lots of directions. And it's been particularly pleasurable preparing this programme. Yes, I completely agree. It's been really, uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary moment in world music history. I think we've we've pretty well established on this show that we think this period, the first half of the 70s, is probably uniquely fruitful. I mean, we haven't got to the early 80s yet, so we'll see. But And Brazil, as much as anywhere else, like the diversity of what's happening and the quality of what's happening makes it very, very clear that, you know, New York is far from being the only place where this manifestation of of inventiveness and experimental radicalism fused with kind of popular exploration is is happening. It's really, really strikingly happening in Brazil at exactly the same time. Indeed. Excellent. Cheers, Jem. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. And remember, if you can, uh, if you haven't done before, give us a five-star rating on a podcast app. If you've got time to write a short review saying how brilliant it is, do that. If you um, <laughs> want to support us on Patreon, if you're not doing already, you can do that. All right, bye, everybody. Bye. bye.